1: Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Join the movement today. We're joined today by Alex Howard, who is the deputy director of the Sunlight Foundation. Previously, he was a senior analyst at Sunlight, the first senior editor for technology and society at the Huffington Post, a columnist at Tech Republic, and a contributor to Tech President. In 2013, he founded epluribusunum.org, a blog focused on open government and technology. He has been recognized twice by the Washingtonian magazine as one of Washington's tech titans, which called him a respected trend spotter and chronicler of government's use of new media. He has appeared on air as an analyst for NPR, several other stations like in DC, WAMU, Al Jazeera English, Al Jazeera America, Washington Post TV, and as a guest on the Kojin Nomdi show. Alex has held fellowships at the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School and the Network Transparency Policy Project, the Ask Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. Thanks, Alex, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It's
2: great to be here.
1: So I I know a little bit about the Sunlight Foundation. I know some of the stuff that you've gotten done in the past, but can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you guys do and what is the broader mission?
2: Sure. So we are a nonpartisan nonprofit located here in Washington, D.C. We're a little over a decade old, and our overarching mission is to try to make governments more open and accountable and transparent to the people they serve, uh, to make our political processes and government processes, governance processes uh, more transparent as well. Uh, We've traditionally used a different uh, set of tools to bring that about, uh, that being the application of technology, journalism, policy, and direct advocacy, um, all focused upon uh, the different branches of government. In the last, oh, five or six years, we've extended our reach into the state and local arena as well.
1: So, as a historian, I love this, right? The idea is getting us more information about what the government is doing. As an intelligence historian with relatively close ties to the community, it doesn't always sit as well as it would otherwise. I'm somewhat torn. Mm-hmm. How do you balance the need for secrecy that involves national security institutions, whether it's intelligence or military or things like that, with the broader desire for transparency in an open society like we have here in the United States? I know that's a, a question they've been dealing with for 250 years. But sure. the Sunlight Foundation specifically, how – how do you, what conversations do you have about how far is too far when it comes to things that maybe shouldn't remain secret?
2: So I think a lot of this starts with the consent of the governed and how we think about our government itself, particularly democratic government. It depends upon an informed public. Uh, we, of course, use representation uh, to send people to Washington to speak for us. Uh, we accept that there are going to be matters of uh, sensitive national security. Uh, there may be uh, any number of areas that impact people's privacy Uh, And that, therefore, uh, we want those representatives to be briefed into those conversations so they can see fully what's happening um, and then to make good decisions, hopefully on our behalf, and then eventually to have some accountability for how well they wielded that. Um, That doesn't mean that we have real-time situational awareness of what's happening on the ground around the world. Uh, Of course, that's something that uh, your colleagues in the intelligence community would have some insight into. Uh, with eyes in the skies or other kinds of intelligence gathering operations. It does mean, however, that in the eyes of history, there is some kind of record, and that 50 years later, the public can go back and look through the eyes of the historian and see, was the public interest upheld? Were the choices they made when there was a scheme of secrecy around them, ones that put the public interest ahead of something else? If there were a series of bad choices which is often what people are presented with. What's the least bad thing I can do? Um, What were the different decisions that someone went through? Um, How did they substantiate them? Um, And how did that turn out? That's long-term accountability. Um, I think you can look at the different statutes that have been passed in the last 50 years. The top of the pile is the Freedom of Information Act. And think about how those equities are expressed within it as well. Um, we say there's an exemption for deliberations. We want to give people some space to have conversations. Eventually, within 25 years, within the new reform statute that we fought for last year, those will be disclosed. Mm-hmm. Um, there may also be privacy or security concerns as well, and those are legitimate. But in a democracy, we like to really advance the idea that the open-by-default approach is the one you want to see governments approach uh, their publics with, particularly with um, historically low levels of trust, and that accountability is what follows afterwards to try to improve that trust.
1: Well, and I think you even see people at the very highest levels of national security arguing that there's overclassification, arguing that it actually hurts the public trust for these agencies and for the national security community to have so much secret that, that mm-hmm. seems kind of ridiculous to be secret. I think one of the best examples of this is the drone program, the CIA drone program, which you watch the news, you see the effect of this. People are talking about this openly, but the CIA to this day has not acknowledged that they actually run an armed drone program. Mm-hmm. And we, we have a lot of people who come on SpyCast, who come to the museum, who are former agency, and have to put their books or anything that they're writing through the publication review board. Mm-hmm. And it, things that are classified things that are redacted seem extreme. Uh, I'm setting up for a broader question here. That's why I'm talking probably more than I should. But when I was in graduate school, I studied nuclear weapons. Mm And in the 1990s, you could go to a public library and pull a book off a shelf and find data and and information about where our nuclear silos were in the 1950s. Mm. Well, during the early 2000s, the Bush administration reclassified that information. Mm. So you could find it at the Podunk Public Library, but we couldn't go to the National Archives and actually pull out this information. Does it get frustrating to try and get information that clearly you think the public should have and most Americans think the public should have, but there are all these FOIA exemptions. There are all these ways that the national security community and the intelligence community can get in the way and claim that there's some kind of national security issue to prevent us from knowing this stuff.
2: Uh, Yes, of course it's frustrating. (laughs) And and that's why people end up in court. That's why you see these long, protracted lawsuits uh, where people are trying to get these requests met. Um, That's why you see, I think, the appropriate uh, debate around, say, disclosure of intelligence gathering as well, uh, which we've seen in Congress too. Um, And sometimes uh, I think the public debate is substantially informed by other aspects of open government, those being leaks and uh, whistleblowing. Uh, And, of course, one person's leak is another person's whistleblower. Uh, And in many cases, however, um, the context for what is put out there can then inform the public and change the conversation about where exactly the level of uh, disclosure should be set and how it should be calibrated for any individual thing. Um, I think only the most uh, idealistic and and, uh, strong transparency zealots, maybe people who talk about radical transparency, want to see everything out Mm -hmm. um, because they understand that to do so uh, would be to undermine a national interest. Uh, It could be to uh, put people in real danger, Um, and it it could also expose uh, different secrets that aren't in the public interest to be put out on the internet or anywhere else. Uh, And What we certainly hope to see, what I personally like to see, um, is for the debates about where that calibration should be between full and open real-time transparency and secrecy that is only broken 50 years later, right. right, is set for each individual area. And everyone, I think, can understand that there's a decidedly different context between uh, the rate of uh, parking ticket fines on a particular part of a city um, and the movements of a SEAL team, right, right? and, and uh, the sources and methods that they may have used to get intelligence about where they should go. These are just different things. Right. And um, in between it is all the gray areas. And, you know, that's the we're sitting in a museum about a, a spy craft. There's a lot of gray areas out there.
1: Yeah, we live in the gray. The Obama administration came to power claiming it was going to be the most transparent government in mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of back and forth about whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they were not as transparent as everyone assumed they were going to be or thought or hoped they were going to be. But did you see, I mean, as a professional who does this for a living... Did you see in the last eight years the last ten years uh, transparency becoming better uh, than it was prior to that
2: so we officially said that the um, that history is going to really give them a mixed record mm-hmm. on this count and I, I think that's appropriate um, if you look at open government writ large uh, the Tendency for most people to look at a given administration is how the White House acts, and um, therefore that's often interpreted by the obsessions and the frustrations of the White House press corps. Um, so can they get access to principles? Can they get access to officials? Can they get their questions answered? Um, are they being given um, full disclosure of what's occurring as it happens? Um, and usually transparency isn't just what they want to tell you, which is what the Obama administration did quite a lot of, mm-hmm. Um, But whether they're willing to be accountable and transparent when you ask them harder questions and what they don't want to tell you. And I think that tends to be um, really where the rubber hits the road in transparency. Um, Can you be fully open and accountable um, about things that you don't want to be um, but that the law or the situation requires you to be? Um, most- and sorry, when
1: you say you don't want to be, this is not about, again, movements of SEAL teams. No. This is about mistakes that were made or things that were embarrassing, perhaps. That's right. You know, are, so I just want the audience to understand it's not that they don't want because they're top secret or classified. It's yep. things that they just don't want the public to know.
2: That's right. And uh, I think that there's obvious tensions around this. Uh, but, you know, you raised an ex- example of uh, military action. What just happened in Yemen? How was that planned out? Um, You know, who died? Uh, Does the American public know that an eight-year-old American girl was killed in that raid, along with the seal Mm -hmm. that President Trump went out to recognize? Does the American public know how many other women and children died? That's transparency about something that's obviously as painful as it gets, right? This is the state taking life in pursuit of a national security action. Um, Our military and the civilian leadership that directed that should be fully open and accountable to the public, about why they made this decision, if they knew women and children were there, and if they've decided to go ahead and do it anyway, justify that, and if they didn't know they were there, then to say that too. Um, but this filters down to the local level too. You know, Anytime a police force decides to use uh, lethal force, um, they should be able to account for it. And of course, we're seeing the new age of transparency where citizens have smartphones, which can take video and put it up onto social media where it instantly gets spread around. And um, that's combined with, of course, the police body cams and dash cams and the CCD cameras, um, and it's creating uh, a, a new kind of relationship um, bec- uh, between communities and their police officers that is increasingly defined and mediated by who has access to the video under what conditions and when, um, and which is, of course, what transparency is often right. about. Um, you know, when we looked at uh, the Obama administration's record on transparency, you know, we looked at a lot of different aspects that go beyond ones people uh, really, like many have heard about, you know, um, things like the White House visitor logs. And they did publish more than 5 million of them by the time they left the administration. I think it's probably going to bump past 6 million. Um, we'll see whether the Trump administration continues that tradition or not. They have a section on their website for it, but, uh, you know, the rubber will hook the road on that thirty see probably around April or uh, 20th or so or three months after inauguration mm-hmm. day um, people often use compliance of the Freedom of Information Act as is an example here how often are different um, uh, aspects of it be exercised or not what's the total number of them submitted versus the total number of them returned right um, how many of those exemptions are used um, unfortunately that tends to be uh, affected by the fact that in many uh, agencies, Uh, those public records requests are coming from commercial providers, so uh, the blunt instrument of using the raw number of submitted, the raw number of um, uh, returns, how, you know, the the statistics may not reflect the fact that if you have an agency that has over half of them coming from a commercial entity, is that really about transparency to the public, or is that about someone data mining for a hedge fund to understand what's happening in regulatory filings for business intelligence? Um, Certainly, journalists, uh, which tend to be in the front lines of transparency, will always focus upon access to the president, access to officials, and get that perspective. Um, there, you can look at the number of press conferences—a place where Obama was, you know, historically, I think, pretty average. Um, you know, way ahead, save the Reagan administration, or mm-hmm. but behind others. Um, you could look at uh, public access to government scientists and research those principles in terms of people being able to understand what's happening. It's one thing to post the paper or the data, but to be able to talk to the person. That's an important aspect of that. Well, and I, I think you people
1: know. aren't thinking of open government, or at least I wasn't, but others might not be thinking of over-government as something that trickles down to those lower levels. And I think that's an interesting concept that – you know the, and maybe it does overlap something we've seen now from the early Trump administration of – the original ban of of government workers from communicating with the public, well, which was one of these these and first that things, was you know?
2: also secretly done too, yeah. and then denied on the record by the administration's own press officials. Right? So it, it, they they doubled down in two different ways there that are really antithetical to transparency. Um, one is by uh, really limiting the ability of people to speak not just to the public or to the press, but to Congress, which actually most likely illegal. Right. And the second, then, doing so in secret. Um, something which we then had to do a lot of homework to figure out what actually was happening, and then managed to get our hands on, um, you know, the memoranda that went out that were denied on the record to these agencies to stop talking. Um, and it was surreal to have a press secretary saying, no, we didn't do that, while there was a transition communications director at the EPA saying, well, we're going to lift this by the end of the week, right? I mean, there, there is a, um, I think, a, a, a head-snapping discrepancy there. Um, you know, there are, uh, I think, an unprecedented number of leaks coming out of this administration. Um, and that's an area where people are justifiably critical of the Obama administration in terms of its use of the Espionage Act to go after uh, leaks. Uh, but you should also look at their support for whistleblowers and whistleblower reforms, which were real. They, mm-hmm. they did advance that. They did sign legislation. Um, you could look at um, their support for open government reform laws moving through Congress, too. And that's a place you can ding them. Um, the administration uh, had two different agencies secretly lobby against it their, its own FOIA uh, rules becoming law, that being the Department of Justice uh, and, I believe, the FTC, um, which is concerned about aspects of its uh, uh, legal work becoming subject to, to FOIA, um, or to uh, the Data Act, which is about standardizing uh, federal government spending uh, data for disclosure online, and that's something that the administration fought uh, in the beginning because they were concerned about how it would affect the, the kind of the power between uh, the different aspects of it. Um, I think there there is something more important here, too, though, and, and two other places I want to drill down into because you asked a, a big question. Um, the first is affirmative support and discussion of the importance of transparency, open government, accountability, better government um, through better use of technology and governance processes, and the support... Um, for it is an affirmative policy of the United States, you know, to say that this is who we are as a democracy. We should be transparent and accountable to you all. We're going to make this a priority from day one. We're going to make the agencies uh, come up with open government plans. We're going to make them accountable for them. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people, including us, wanted to see them put a lot more political capital into and put a lot more investment into. Right. But they did do it from day one. Um, and uh, the, also the affirmation through the State Department, but all the rest of the apparatus, that um, press freedom is very important to democracy, that um, that the lifeblood uh, of you know uh, democracy is information, and that uh, effectively the fourth estate is uh, its immune system, and that you want to support it, and that the policy of the United States is affirmatively towards upholding democracies around the world and the role of the press in them. Um, and, of course, that is a... Uh, To say that has changed under the Trump administration is to underbill um, the impact of having the president of the United States decry news organizations as fake news um, or tell them that they're terrible, that they're lying, they're horrible people, um, you know, to, I think, uh, delegitimize papers of record or major news stations. Um, The one place we can incontrovertibly say that the Obama administration made a lot of progress is something the Sunlight Foundation cares a lot about, which is – um, the disclosure of taxpayer-funded information to the public, in public, online. Um, and the amount of data that's been released in the last decade is staggering. And we're actually now carefully watching to see if and where it's pulled off.
1: Well, we, we try to be as apolitical as we possibly can here at Spike at the museum writ large. What, what's amazing to me as a historian is these ideas of transparent government and knowing where the money is going and understanding... That you know making sure the government is uh, is listening to the people making sure the government is is responsible for their actions today these sound like very liberal tree hugger you know left wing talking points historically these are conservative talking points right these are these are things that the conservative movement back in the day was for more than anything else this mm-hmm. idea of decentralizing the federal government taking power away from this Strong central government giving it to the people, the individuals. That's even what the Tea Party stood for just seven years ago, and now to talk about transparency and openness and uh, you know access to federal data is all of a sudden this liberal. You know, US government hating talking point. It just it seems strange to me that it's. Is kind it of, really though? Well, no, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it is, yeah. but it seems like.
2: I would push back on that in a big way. Yeah, Some me of too, the, the but... biggest um, proponents of open government data in the United States Congress are Republicans. Daryl Issa is a huge proponent, he's the guy behind the Data Act. He was the guy behind Freedom of Information Act reform. Uh, John Cornyn, uh, you know, a senator, is a huge proponent of the Freedom of Information uh, Act and open and transparent government. Uh, Chuck Grassley, same thing. Um, you know, I think this is a, a widely shared bipartisan value. I think that the, um, the reasons for it may be different. Um, Republicans may uh, support transparency, accountability, because uh, it may be a way to uh, see where there is waste, fraud, abuse, corruption, inefficient government, um, and be able to use that transparency to shrink the size of an agency or shrink the size of a program or spending. Um, Democrats Uh, might want to use that same amount of information, uh, that data and performance, administration, outcomes, um, and then understand it is a way to improve how government works. Um, And somewhere in the middle is what we all want, Mm -hmm. um, which is government that is responsive to the public, um, that uh, is efficient, that's effective, um, and that's accountable for making mistakes in in an iterative way. Uh, And the, I think, uh, the notion that um, open government is a liberal idea. Is one I, I toss in the, into the trash bin of history. That this is this is something that goes back to uh, the founding fathers, um, bringing out of the Enlightenment the principles of informed public. And you cannot have that unless government is transparent and, account- and mm-hmm. accountable. It's the baseline for an informed public. Um, and I think that uh, Republicans and the Republican Party has stood on the right side of history on that count. And I fully expect them to do so again in this Congress. Um, Once they get their heads around uh, the fact that they're going to have to hold this president accountable, um, particularly when he's bucking transparency and accountability norms. Remember, he's the first uh, presidential nominee in four decades who hasn't disclosed his taxes. Right. Um, And I understand that the Congress is is, uh, reticent to act on that count. um, But uh, it is a a, a done deal that there is something in there that is relevant to the public interest. And it's just going to be a matter of time until we figure out what it is.
1: Uh, let me ask you, you talked about data several times since data is the key to all this, You know, whether again, if you're a Republican or Democrat, you're looking for data to back up your, your arguments or your information. One of the ch- most chilling things to me after the election inauguration were several agencies scrambling to back up federal data, whether it was the EPA or others, to try to find ways to preserve this data with the fear that it was going to be deleted by the incoming administration. Now, in their defense, and I don't do this often. There, there wasn't a official move to delete all this data, but the fear was there certainly, and I mm-hmm. think that uh, that that was a harbinger of potential problems moving forward. Did, how how involved was the Sunlight Foundation in that, or were you at all?
2: Well, uh, we're watching pretty carefully. Um, we've been engaged with the National Archives and the Library of Congress and we're certainly watching to see what the agency's posture has been. The only database that we've seen removed from the uh, Internet to date, and and this is entirely removed, not just from one aspect of uh, of it, that being the White House website, but taken offline entirely, um, is animal welfare data over at USDA. And there's a lawsuit that's effectively done that. Now someone else has countersued. In fact, this is the, the coalition of groups that got that data to be put up for public inspection to begin with using a federal court order. Um, And so we have seen that happen there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's very important to remember that uh, this data is a federal record. It's relevant to the Federal Records Act. So it's one thing to say we're going to pull it off of the Internet. Uh, It's another to say that we're going to delete it. And the National Archives has been pretty clear about that. You can't do that. Um, If you want to – if you – want to even pull it off, um, there's a, a legal uh, notification and disclosure process you're supposed to go through to say, hey, we're about to take this offline. Heads up, everybody. Um, and USDA certainly fell a follow of that. And, um, you know, we were part of a broad coalition um, that has called attention to the need for this kind of disclosure. And we're also trying to calibrate the amount of urgency and concern that we express around this process so that the vacuum of communication from the current administration about its stance in this area is not filled up by fear. Mm -hmm. And we saw this expressed actually within the last 24 hours. Um, The uh, Obama White House set up a section of its website, open.whitehouse.gov, where they disclosed data about the administration itself in terms of the White House, the EOP, executive office of the president. Um, And they didn't change that actually in the transition. So the website still had pictures of President Obama on it as recently as February 7th. And, you know, we, we highlighted that. So it looks like they left it, which is great, but right. they obviously haven't updated it. Right. Someone noticed us pointing that out, changed the pictures, and removed all the data. Now, today, uh, actually yesterday, people noticed the data was gone and immediately said, Trump has scrubbed open data. This is terrible. And we had to point out that The National Archives has archived all that data under Obama White House uh, uh, website um, because it's a presidential record and you can't just scrub it. Now, you can remove things from the Internet without deleting them entirely, and that's probably where the gray area is. Um, And there are many places where the agencies have a great deal of discretion in terms of their messaging and the text they use. Um, But the legally binding stuff... The rules, the regulations, the executive orders, the memoranda—that uh, has to go in the Federal Register. Doesn't go away until um, it has been rescinded, you know, at, uh, right. et cetera. And that also has to go in there. Um, and you know, the overall I think concern that people have about what will happen to the future of open government data, to our statistical agencies, to the um, Bureau of Labor and Statistics, um, the scientific data—the um, place to really watch is Congress to see what they do around the census in the American Community Survey, to see what they do around, uh, say, uh, the Department of uh, Health and and Human Services uh, approach to disclosing uh, data about what's happening in Medicare and Medicaid, um, or to look um, towards specific bills, which already exist, um, that would limit – um, the Department of Housing and Urban Development's ability to collect statistical data about uh, racial disparities and access to housing, which is a you know piece of legislation that exists right. right now. That is the most likely vector for these things to be weakened, where um, the agencies that are charged with collecting, storing, uh, analyzing, and disclosing the data um, lose funding. Um, the existing data, as I said, is a federal record. It's possible it could be taken off of the Internet, And then there'll be a a process by which uh, people will most likely have to sue under the Freedom of Information Act and then repost it to make it accessible. So it is wholly appropriate and smart and useful for distributed community people um, to make sure that that which is publicly accessible now will remain publicly accessible. And those efforts have been ongoing for months. Um, They exist in uh, established organizations like the Internet Archive. Uh, They exist within the auspices of the Library of Congress and its end-of-term web crawl. Um, they exist within institutions uh, like uh, MIT and Stanford and Penn, which have all uh, had uh, research librarians and professors who have organized efforts. And there are grassroots movements as well, the people getting together at hackathons, uh, data uh, refuge and rescue events. Um, mm-hmm. And we're involved in one of them this weekend right here in D.C. or we're at Georgetown, um, where people I think will be going through and uh, improving the metadata, improving the, the quality and assurance of the data that's there, Um, and getting more involved in uh, trying to save uh, that which is in the public commons now to continue to be in the public commons. So if there is an adjustment, if someone decides to buck the disclosure uh, requirements and make something only accessible through a government computer at a library somewhere, which is not an uncommon approach to access, um, then that uh, data itself remains freely accessible.
1: Let me ask you about the Freedom of Information Act. Is that something that a lot of people know a little bit about? They may... Misunderstand it unless they've done serious research in national security, they may not know how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly do. I banged my head against the wall at the Freedom of Information Act for years and years and years as a grad student. Let me ask you a very broad question, but it's one you can answer however you want to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it doing what it was designed to do?
2: Hmm. Well, that might go back to the question of uh, how, where it came from, right, right? Um, where you had a member of Congress who was trying to get information from agencies and was frustrated by it. And then uh, there was, you know, congressional action galvanized by Watergate. Now, that was already in the process. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not was not a new piece of legislation at that point. But uh, certainly there were a lot of uh, sunshine laws that came into effect after after Watergate and people's, I think... Uh, reaction to secrecy in government, unaccountable government, um, and the extension of uh, the the public's uh, right to access information about their government um, as a uh, idea in the U.S., um, you know, is uh, borrowing from something that existed elsewhere. We're far from the first nation to have done that. Mm-hmm. I think actually Sweden is the one that gets credit for the world's first uh, access to information law. Um, it really depends what you think about uh, – how the public should be informed when and about what. The, if, if you think that there should be an ongoing, effective disclosure of government performance, uh, what's happening with the regulations, um, of actions, legislative movement, of court cases and dockets, of uh, the president's actions, speeches, words, travel, of uh, people's calendars, their expenses, of uh, federal spending, um, of proposed budgets, uh, all the different aspects of government... Um, then FOIA is not the right tool for that. Um, you know, it it's uh, rather the r- right approach is to figure out um, what should be open by default, um, and then to proactively disclose that in an open machine readable format on the internet, um, uh, so that it can be disseminated to the entire public, uh, without anyone have to uh, request it, without having to be an officer to review it, without there needed to be lawyers checked, etc. Um, that's the default, and I think that. Um, that approach um, is the one that governments should be adopting. That said, um, there are going to be any number of things that agencies will not want to proactively release. Right. And that's where FOIA becomes relevant. It, it, it's You can't dump these kinds of laws, public records laws, just because governments are getting better about proactive disclosure online about – Uh, administrative data and performance data and traffic data and service requests and uh, all the rest of the things that they want to put out there that might be quite relevant. Um, There are any number of ways that uh, government officials and elected officials um, exercise power um, that will always be in the public interest that they may not want to share. And that's where these kinds of requests come in and that's why it's useful um, for them to be arbitred through a judge Mm -hmm. who can then make a decision about whether this request should be granted, not in what form.
1: Because that takes a long time. I mean, the yeah. the idea is a of FOIA office, like a CIA is one I dealt with pretty ex- extensively while I was mm-hmm. doing research, and they are so understaffed for the kind of requests that they get. I mean, they do a arguably. I mean, I, I as a historian, they're my arch nemesis, but but in a purely objective sense, they do a hell of a job for how small their manpower is compared to the thousands and thousands of requests about everything from UFOs to, you know, who killed Kennedy and everything in between. Mm-hmm. But it's still really frustrating to try to get, you know, I've, I've tried to get documents from the 40s and 50s and I've been told no. Um, they Granted, they had to deal with nuclear weapons and other things like that. So I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, those kind of agencies uh, – do you think that they ab- abuse, I don't want to use the word abuse, mm-hmm. do they think they overuse their FOIA protections? The, well, the, the re- the, uh, not FOIA protections, that's the opposite. They overuse the exemptions to FOIA uh, to get around giving us what we potentially should get.
2: The evidence is that exemptions are overused, yes. Yeah.
1: Perfect answer. Movement watches, spelled MVMT but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over one million watches sold to customers in 160 plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. The story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing. And as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. In 2003, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now. I'm not one to advocate this. Stay in school, kids. But tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. And due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crowd-funded fashion brand in 2013. Through the amazing engagement of their fans, they've established a growing community on social media, amassing 1.5 million followers. In 2013, since then, they've come really far. The watches are gorgeous, both men's and women's watches. And I told you this before, but when I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked the best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Because movement watches started at just $95. Look at the department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for watches of this quality. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing the best possible price. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today, with free shipping and free returns, by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. The watch I have has a really clean design, and, and seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. A lot of, whoa, where'd that watch come from? So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's com slash spycast. Join the movement. Let me ask you a question. Are there threats to even the level of openness we have today through FOIA? Are there, are there people out there? Are there institutions out there that are trying to get in the way of even what we have today? Or FOIA's evolution into something better? Uh, Congress, federal government, are are they trying to pull back some of the access we have through the current FOIA system?
2: I I think that the reform that went through last year, which we helped uh, usher through Congress into the president's pen, will be helpful. Um, I think people's concerns about President Trump repealing FOIA are overblown. Um, I do think that the president's uh, stance, uh, aforementioned, towards disclosure, transparency, Uh, are going to filter down to the rest of the administration, uh, much as his stance towards ethics has. And um, the tone set from the top, um, the antagonism towards the press, the antagonism towards uh, uh, the public's right to know what's being done in the White House um, that's not just mediated um, through uh, specific um, press questions but rather disclosed on an ongoing basis, um, those are suggestive in an administration that is uh, regressive compared to the standard that was set. Um, you know, I think that the, uh, the first month now, well, just about when we were talking, mm-hmm. um, has been so tumultuous and chaotic uh, in some of the process stance, too, um, that you can see exactly where um, secrecy is a tremendous problem. Um, if you're talking about the drafting and promulgation of executive orders um, that aren't shared widely across government before they're rolled out and the text isn't effectively disclosed to the public, um, there isn't broad, widespread coordination with rolling them out, having uh, the principals uh, who head the agencies being made available to the press, uh, there being uh, really effective guidance spread everywhere. Um, if you're catching people in the air, if you ended up detaining people, Uh, if there's some issues uh, exerting court orders, if there's confusion about uh, who something applies to and who doesn't. um, This is not how transparent accountable government is supposed to work. Um, And I think certainly uh, the side of government which is supposed to be focused upon promulgation of information, communication, and clear plain language is also missing too. Um, If you hide something in bureaucratic ease, um, you're effectively doing uh, what you might do by privacy by obscurity, security by obscurity, well, the opposite uh, of, I guess, it's opacity by obscurity, where you basically have something um, that can't be understand, understood because it's cloaked in language and it's not disclosed to everyone. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons to be uh, concerned, Uh with the lack of, of any uh, affirmative statements um, with respect to uh, sunshine laws, to transparency, to continuation of the United States participation in the Open Government Partnership, um, we did get a a question uh, lobbed to the new Attorney General, uh, Mr. Sessions, uh, about uh, about FOIA, but it was um, just sort of perfunctory uh, during his hearing, and um, it was not at all specific uh, on some areas we'd have loved to hear more about, like uh, this uh, FOIA portal that uh, the Office of Management and Budget and uh, U.S. uh, Justice Department are supposed to build over the course of this year, Um, or uh, the, you know, specifics of how and where uh, he might improve upon the last administration's record, Um, or any number of other uh, uh, issues that are of relevance to the country. Um, You know, my my hope is that uh, we'll hear more about that. Um, The... Uh, The reality, however, is this administration is embroiled in controversies uh, that are uh, burning at a higher pitch and rate, um, some of which are at its own making and some of which have historical Mm -hmm. uh, context that is unprecedented. Um, And if we're going to talk about transparency and accountability, you know, we're going to have to talk about the involvement of the Trump campaign with Russia, right? Right. Uh, If we're here at this museum in this context, um, how much are they going to disclose about that and to whom and when? When did the president know about Mr. Flynn's contacts? Um, when did the White House counsel know about his contacts? Um, what exactly happened and when? These are all questions that go to the heart of transparency and informed public. Right. The FBI saw fit to tell the public about an op- reopened investigation into former Secretary of State's uh, Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, and yet we didn't hear about Mr. Manafort. We didn't hear about their concerns in Carter, these other Perridge areas, or and no, that that is an extraordinary decision upon them to be selectively transparent, and it's one that obviously has historic outcomes.
1: Well, I mean, there's, I think, there's selective embracement of transparency in this case, also with the, uh, I use the word embrace again, the embrace of the WikiLeaks release of documents about the DNC, and now, uh, as of the recording today, the big rant from the White House was. You know, leakers should be punished and everything else. It's mm-hmm. you love leaks two months ago or three months ago. And now all of a sudden when the leaks going against you, there's problems with that. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that's pro- problematic. I mean, one of the things that I that jumped out at me when, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I guess when this will post will be actually February 20th. So it'll be a month since the inauguration okay. and the the National Security Council meetings. Uh, I, I even have on my notes the Bannon White House, which. Uh, It's the Trump White House, but somehow I typed the Bannon White House because Mm. uh, certainly as far as the National Security Council is concerned. And one thing they're not doing so far is releasing a summary of conclusions, which is kind of this document that's used By the public to really understand that—that seems to be unprecedented to me. Is that something that's so dramatically? I mean, the the George W. Bush administration released that. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the Obama administration did. Mm -hmm. So, 16 straight years of National Security Council meetings where there was a release to the public of at least the basics of the conversation. Yeah. And now that's ended completely. Yeah.
2: I mean, look, this is a group of people who had not, by and large, served in government before. uh, With General Flynn's departure as National Security Advisor, you take away actually the person who had the most foreign policy experience and experience in the military too, Um, both of which are relevant to this kind of job, this kind of work, this kind of process, this kind of institution. And institutions have traditions. They have democratic norms associated with them like these kinds of disclosures. And... In many cases, they're accepted as the way we do things, and there's a reason that we do them, because we think that the public should have this kind of information, that we think it's an important part of our job to do this kind of disclosure. Um, and if you have people who haven't been in that role before, they may not value it in the same way. Um, and if there's no legal requirement to do it, then they might question, well, why do we do it? Right. You know. And uh, I think that it's going to be very important for everybody. Um, in all the different communities that might be listening here to think through what's different about this or not. You know, uh, is this something that everyone has done in the past? Is this something that no one has done in the past? Is that a good or bad thing for democratic accountability? Is it a good or bad thing for our institutions? Is it a good or bad thing for the way that a government works or should work, could work in the 21st century? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the uh, overwhelming context, of course, is the extremely polarized electorate um, An extremely low trust in government um, and the uh, apparent shift um, towards the uh, justification or legitimization of hacks of individuals um, where uh, and then having whatever is exfiltrated from that be weaponized in the service of political ends um, you know it's n- wasn't just the dncc or the, D- the DACC. or the it was also you know uh, the Clinton campaign's chairman, John Podesta, yeah. former White House Chief of Staff, whose private email was hacked and uh again and again and again, I saw people saying, "Well, look what came out of it therefore it's it's okay, but the way it was weaponized by dragging it out disclosure day after day after day after day without any balance because of course, if something else was hacked on the Republican side we didn't see, we didn't hear about it um suggests exactly how transparency that it's enforced, um, can be used to shift an electorate's viewpoint of something and its relative prominence and importance. Um, It has to be couched, of course, though, in the fact that whistleblowers are incredibly important in government, in industry, everywhere else, and that they need to be protected, they need to be uh, embraced, they need to have um, their rights upheld, and we're glad to see uh, whistleblower uh, Act enhancement uh, go in in 2012, uh, and certainly when the president was uh, decrying illegal leaks on Twitter this morning, uh, pointed out the fact that um, government employees have affirmative rights to report um, corruption and wrongdoing in government. And if they see uh, public officials doing things, saying things. Acting in ways that are contrary to the public interest that the public should know about, I think you could say it's a patriotic duty for them to come forward and to do it. And well, in, and you can it's a leak, right. but um, whether you view it as whistleblowing or not is often contingent upon whether you you share the party of the right, individual exactly.
1: or not. I want to ask you about that because, whistleblowing and leaking gets. Conflated so often mm-hmm. uh, that I think the words need to be separated very, very far apart, yeah. and there needs to be a real clear line of demarcation between the two. Because it seems to me that leaking purely on the basis of dumping information that you want people to know and don't go through the process yeah. is the greatest enemy to whistleblowers you can possibly have. Mm. Because by it's very easy to say somebody who is a legitimate whistleblower and paint them with that stigma of being a leaker. I'm thinking of someone like Thomas Drake, who went through every single stage of the whistleblower law Mm -hmm. and then ended up leaking, essentially, because he went to the press and he got slammed for it. That's somebody that should have been protected to the full extent of the law. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people compare what he did to what Edward Snowden did. And I'm not a Snowden hater by any means. I'm kind of right down the middle Mm -hmm. when it comes to Snowden. Mm -hmm. But it's hard for me to give him the whistleblower title Because he did not go through those steps. And yes, he argues himself. He saw what Thomas Drake did and saw him get screwed. But he is more of a leaker than anything else. He went Mm. straight. And do you you see a need for a even clearer dichotomy? The celebration of whistleblowers and maybe the condemnation of leakers when it comes to uh, making sure the real... Maybe I'm editorializing here and I'm asking you a question with my, with my point and seeing what you think about it, but does what I'm, what I'm saying make some sense?
2: I, I, I understand where you're coming from yeah. on it, certainly. I, I think that, uh, to bring it back to the early part of the conversation, um, this is an area that's occupied by shades of gray. Yeah. And um, in, in many cases, uh, if you look at, say, uh, journalism and journalists, um, you know, my preference is always to judge an act of journalism on its own merits. Did they take an existing set of reports, add context to it, and verify it? And the context and the verification would elevate something from between a report, that which anybody can do with a smartphone, to a piece of journalism, which, frankly, anybody can do because anybody can fact check and anybody can uh, go through and add the context to it, and then off it goes. With a leak, of course, we see senior administration officials said X, right? Right. Um, Now, if uh, they're saying X and it's about something that's good for an administration – well, that looks like them leaking details of a, a raid, you know, upon something or um, details upon uh, what the president said to someone in this context. If it looks good for the administration, well, that's probably a leak, right? right. However, um, if, you, if they, the same senior administration officials, say nine sources are available to the Washington Post who all say, well, the intercepts actually show Mr. Flynn talked about sanctions, um, is that a leak or is that then whistleblowing in the fact that the senior official actually did have contact prior to inauguration with a Russian uh, diplomat talking about something which would certainly seem to be prohibited under the Logan Act? Um, like, so it, is, is, that, um, is that binary? No. Is it black and white? No. I think that we have to look at each individual case. You mentioned Mr. Drake, who I've talked to. Mm-hmm. I think it is fair to say that what he was trying to tell Congress about was whistleblowing, right? Um, where uh, his uh, you know, security agency is vastly overspending on the program um, compared to doing it a different way, and he tries to alert people and tries to alert people, and then um, he goes through the hoops, and then he does tell the Baltimore Sun, and then the full force of the federal government comes down on him. And he's eventually cleared of that, but his career right. is over. Um, I think he is fairly described as a whistleblower. Yeah. you know, um, There are uh, many other contexts where people in... Uh, in, in enterprise, in, in the corporate world, um, come forward to say, yeah, we knew that tobacco was carcinogen. Mm-hmm. We knew. We knew it. And we, you know, funded um, studies that would, would contravene that. Or we knew that, uh, you know, the burning of fossil fuels was leading to changes in the Earth's climate. And that was not something we wanted to come out of, of course, There are big companies that have had to cop to that Um, anytime that there is a huge disparity between what an institution knows um, that has a negative side to it and what they're telling the public and there's a refusal to disclose it I think whistleblowers often have an affirmative duty to use their rights and hopefully to be very careful about um, their approach uh, especially in government uh, to then getting that word out to someone where it can make an Impact upon addressing the concern, right. and that's something we should want to see. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, the enemy of, of the whistleblower is the leak. I think it's actually uh, pervasive, uh, you know, surveillance, which makes it incredibly difficult to tell someone what's going on without it being traced back to you. Right.
1: I, 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 the reason I brought this up: there's, a, there's a lot of people having conversations today, writing about it, discussing it, saying even, even people who are very anti-Trump. Saying it's good we know this information, but it's disturbing that it's coming out yeah. through leaks. And they're you know throwing around deep state, which you know might as well throw out the word Illuminati for me. But mm. uh, there's there's arguments that you know anonymous sources are incredibly difficult. How do you back them up? Yep. You know, anonymous sources say the dossier is partly true. How do you believe this? Who's and, I, and you're talking to a person that certainly understands protecting sources and methods. Um, it just seems to me. And again, I'm I'm on that side of the aisle that is liking a lot of this information, not liking it because it shows the country is going in a very negative direction. But mm-hmm. I, as the listeners know, I'm pretty left of center. But at the same time, it is a little disturbing to me mm-hmm. that anonymous sources, whether there's nine of them or, or none of them, uh, and what does senior level mean and what, what where is this information coming from? Is Are these people who are career civil servants? Are these holdovers from the Obama administration? Are these people who, uh, you know, Michael Flynn is a good example of this. He was fired by the Obama administration. He had uh, a bone to pick. And so if he was a senior administration official and he's saying bad things about the Obama administration, I don't necessarily think that that's an objective viewpoint. How do we? Like, how do we reconcile this? Is the really key question here, mm-hmm. um, without burning these people's identity, without burning sources and methods, but at the same time letting the public know whether or not to trust these sources?
2: Yeah, boy, I know you're, you're getting yeah. to the nuts of very difficult problems. You know, in, in this case, I always hesitate to compare investigative investigated journalists to intelligence analysts because. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, autocratic states love to call journalists spies and kick them out. Um, But the reality is, is that they're often looking at the same open source intelligence. They're looking at the same things and trying to figure out what's actually happening here. What can I trust here? What can I present to my editor or to my director about what's happening? And my best bet that what what's the likelihood of this actually being true or not? And my favorite question: What would make it not true? And the trust of the director, I think, um, for the, you know, coming down to the analyst, is, is going to say, well, what does the data show? How good is the data? Where are these documents from? How good is your, are your human sources on the ground? How, you know, trustworthy have they been in the past? You know, um, would, you, would you back this up if I rang it up the flagpole? Um, with the journalist, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, you're uh, going to go to your editor. Editor's going to say, well, who are these sources? You know, were they actually in the room with the mm-hmm. president when he hung up? And you're saying he hung up on the prime minister of Australia? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 really? Like, can you, can you, you sure? If we're going to run that, that's a pretty big thing to claim. Um, there's an, there's a ton of other high level leaks like that, where people are claiming extraordinary access to what people are saying and doing at the highest levels of government. Um, to be able to back that up and print it, um, you are relying upon the public to trust that you have got it right Um, and unfortunately uh, i think there's lots of reasons that people are skeptical of editors and journalists and reporters a lot of institutions getting it right Um, and that means that it's uh it's critical for anyone who's in charge of making these decisions to take all the efforts they can not to be focused upon being first but being accurate Um, and to be able to develop a trusted relationship with the public over time that goes beyond the institution to the individual byline and to say, you know, I do my best to get the rough draft of history correct, and when it's wrong, I fix it. right? And I do so transparently um, and make sure you all know that I got this part wrong, here's what I learned later on, and here's what I did about fixing it. Um, And I think that's critical now because we're seeing the normal – process of journalism in which there are errors and there are retractions um, be used to beat the profession and the institutions around the head as fake news. That somehow um, making mistakes in individual reports um, somehow not presenting facts um, in the right order or with full context or clarity is being spun as the same thing as someone creating outright propaganda or known falsehoods um, from Macedonia or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they're simply not the same thing. Right. Um, and the the delegitimization of uh, our major outlets by the White House is one of the most concerning things I have seen from an administration in D.C. Full and stop. Um, it should be something that everyone's worried about. Um, I've seen a dawning concern now um, from um, many of my friends and neighbors uh, in the Republican and Libertarian community um, that. Know, decades of efforts to delegitimize so-called mainstream media are now bearing fruit um, because people <laughs> don't believe right. anything. So, yeah, the gatekeepers are gone, and that's good in some ways. But um, the check and balance of the fourth estate um, is not there in the same way. And in a in an a information environment um, in which alternative facts are being advanced um, and uh, there is hundred um, percent you know psych- psychological operations and propaganda being mixed in from other nation states that's a very dangerous environment um, because as you know from your studies of history um, mistakes and misunderstandings were in a war start right uh, and if, you know if, if the the news environment and the information environment is this bad when it's just uh, an administration proactively going after its own initiatives, which they have time to plan and to roll out, what will it be like when there's a full-blown crisis? And wh- wh- what can we trust? Who, who will be able to trust in those environments?
1: Well, I mean, you talk about the mistrust in the, the mainstream media, or whatever you want to call it. What alarms me as well you is can say traditional broadcast, traditional broadcast, print, media radio. Yeah. I know. I, I, it, whatever words we want to use today. Yeah. Um, what worries me, from an intelligence perspective, is the, the mistrust in intelligence agencies. Yeah. And this now includes the FBI, which, after Hoover left, was the kind of the the, the agency you held up above all others. Like mm-hmm. this is the uncorruptible agency, and now the FBI is under suspicion of whether it's Comey or the FBI holding back on releasing the information that we now know about contact between General Flynn and, and Russia, and uh-huh. deciding to release the Wiener emails and other things like that in between. The the. Uh, the attack by the White House on even uses the word that, you know, puts in quotes around the word intelligence mm-hmm. agencies. Uh, and I remember this from the, the presidential debates of when Hillary Clinton came out and said, you know, all 17 American intelligence agencies are making the same conclusion. And and president now President Trump said, what do they know or why? You know why they're behind you mm-hmm. that talk about in a crisis. Yeah. You know, if we can't trust the New York Times, that's one thing. But if, if the CIA is telling the world that North Korea is about to launch an attack on the South or China is about to do something or Russia is about to invade Estonia and oh, it's fake news. Yeah. It's you know they're they're holdovers from the Obama administration and they just want to the anti-Russian propaganda. It, that to me is scary. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I don't see it abating. I see it getting worse.
2: There, there's certainly the potential for it. Uh, you know, I, we, we have to be honest about the fact that our intelligence services, uh, certainly including the CIA, um, have lied to the public. Um, certainly um, we, uh, I think, as a nation, have a memory of the Director of National Intelligence not being entirely truthful to Congress not so long ago. Um, and uh, if you are at all, I think, reasonable about looking at the process of spycraft, you are going to acknowledge that there is some degree of dissembling and obfuscation mm-hmm. and, and lying that goes on in that process. Um, that being said, um, when they deliver an intelligence assessment to the president or when they brief in members of Congress, um, we expect that they're giving their best shot, that they're not lying to them, that they are doing their best as intelligence officers right. to tell them what is actually happening here's the picture before here's the picture after we brought in another craft and looked at it we got someone on the ground this is who we think is you know did this or not
1: it's one thing when jim clapper is saying something an open briefing to congress on tv
2: mm-hmm. yes
1: it's a lie but he he's only limited by what he can say but in a presidential daily brief you'd hope That there's no subjectivity if Andrew Butts about it. The
2: unprecedented nature of the last three months has seen a president-elect continuing to call into question the intelligence he's receiving um, when, you know, certainly from my perspective, he's getting the crown jewel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was surprised to hear he wasn't taking a PDB every morning as soon as he was elected. Uh, since that's something I would love to read every morning. Right. Like I, I, am a you know a, a voracious information right. consumer. I want the most, the best, most trustworthy stuff all the time. That's
0: the good time. stuff. Yeah, and
2: yeah. Um, how could you not want to read that every day? Uh, if, especially if you're in charge of making decisions which f- affect humanity. Because at the end of the day, the yeah. president of the United States, like we have the ability to blow up the world, and uh, we are surrounded um, on uh, both oceans. Um, by uh, hostile actors uh, who are checking and balancing that power, and that's been true for many decades. Mm-hmm. Why would you not want to get as much insight into that as possible? Particularly uh, if you didn't uh, have decades of experience in the military and government to, right. f- to inform you. Like I, 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 I am, and con- you know, surprised by that. It doesn't make sense to me um, as someone who tries to understand. The motivations of people in government, um, and to advocate for them to be accountable to the public for the decisions they make. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Uh, I understand why you uh, wouldn't disclose what you uh, hear about. Right, that makes lots of sense. Um, I understand why you might be discreet about acting on it, so you don't burn the sources for that intelligence. Right. Um, you know, I, I love reading the history of World War II um, and the you know the allies cracking of uh, the german uh codes and then the japanese codes and their you know intentionality in acting on it if we bomb this convoy they'll know we'll broke we have broken the code right so we'll like we might let people die because we want to make sure we'll still have access to intelligence like those are the kinds of of decisions that i think um history always will judge someone for good or ill on, um because at the end of that you know we want to defeat fascism and totalitarianism like I, as an american i'm i'm down with that um you know i think that we have a tremendous amount to be accountable for as a country in our own history you know from the original sin of slavery to the need to get suffrage down to civil rights um to our treatment of uh you know the original peoples here when we arrived like there's a lot that americans uh you know have to know about what we've done at the same time we've been on the right side of a lot of things right. too and um, you know the, all of the public servants I've met, the members of the military I've met, of course the um, you know every every single member of the uh, academic world, healthcare world, um, you know they are all dedicated in their own ways to uh, making our society an extraordinary place to raise children as we are, um, and to try to build a better world and protect the one we've got. Uh, and I think that the Uh, The key to that is creating a a set of shared facts about what's happening. Um, And this comes back to data, uh, open government, scientific integrity, right? Um, How can we make good public policy if we can't agree upon what's happening? How do we grapple with a chief executive who says that we're at a 50-year high for violent crime when – the Bureau of Statistics, the Justice Department says, actually, we're you know way below where we were thirty, forty years mm-hmm. ago. Yeah, there's been a little, there's been an uptick in the last year, but it's still compared to historic levels, way low. Right. Um. You know, how do you deal with widespread denialism uh, around uh, the causes of climate change, and then think about mitigating it? You know, how do you approach that from a risk management perspective, uh, particularly when your own Department of Defense is reacting to that and says this is real and CIA and, and the need, intelligence yeah like yeah. they're all united like all right. right you know we've got a bunch of naval bases if the right. water comes up what do we do about yeah. that right. um, you know how do you deal with uh, I think a uh, antagonistic approach towards empiricism as a process um, the scientific method as a way of understanding the world and understanding something like the theory of evolution, the theory of antibiotic resistance. When you overuse antibiotics, you get resistant drugs. Therefore, we should do different things, um, which thereby also tells you something about how evolution works at the lower level. Um, In our politics, uh, those are, I think, um, one of the, uh, for good or ill, um, one of the the most fundamental issues that we're all going to have to confront no matter where we are in government or outside of it. Um, and as an advocate, I want the asynchronies of information to be reduced between the electorate and people making decisions um, when it does not impinge you know, uh, national security, it doesn't harm someone's privacy, um, so we can understand the decisions they're making, the information that they got, and then hold them accountable at the ballot box.
1: Well, and I was a cynic until 2010 when the Tea Party showed that grassroots organizing and You know, mobilization of just pissed off people could make a dramatic change in the way the politics work. Uh, And then again, now you're seeing in the last month how grassroots organizing and protesting can kind of force issues, force the press to cover certain things and force the administration to do other things. And I think um, that has a lot to do with what you're talking about. It has a lot to do with access to information. It's demand to know certain things. And I think that's
2: nonpartisan, by the way. Yeah, right? no, I, I, that's, yeah. I, that's why and, I started with the Tea Party and I right. ended with us. So you said you talked about this earlier, yeah. you know, viewing this issue yeah. from a certain ideological perspective. I just don't see it that way. Yeah. I, I think that every member of the American public should have the same access to the information about what the government's doing. Um, you know, how much money someone's receiving, how much lobbying they're you know being influenced by and by whom. Um, you know, what legislation they've sponsored, what legislation they've co-sponsored, how they voted. And that's just in the legislative branch, Right. right? Uh, and the executive, there's all kinds of other things we might want to know. Um, and the public has a right to know that um, and to be informed about it um, and to see the checks and balances that exist within government acting as well, including the inspection reports and the enforcement reports. Um, you know, I am a huge fan of inspectors general. Mm-hmm. I know lots of agencies aren't. Yeah. But um, they are an important counterweight inside a government. And their reports are extraordinarily useful to the public to understand what's happening at those agencies. That's how we knew that the State Department's email archiving practices are terrible. I mean, just awful. And unfortunately, the State Department didn't have an inspector general for many years. If it had, maybe some things wouldn't have been quite so slipshod there. Um, Certainly now, uh, any agency that doesn't have it um, is going to be in a bad place because there is a vacuum of um deputy and assistants um you know the the lower level of appointees across all the agencies um and that's an environment where uh, unfortunately uh there is more room for making mistakes and the things that both sides of the aisle care about um effectiveness of government or ineffectiveness of government are going to prop up right
1: We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Well, Alex Hallard is the deputy director of the Sunlight Foundation. You can check out this foundation and all it does at sunlight.org i believe
2: that would be a great url we should it's totally not yours. buy it but uh
1: sun foundation sunlight uh, i had yeah. the wrong yeah. dot. at
2: sun foundation on twitter at, if at you're sun into foundation that kind of on thing. twitter and yeah. alex
1: himself is on twitter if you want to follow along there yeah. thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on spycast we we love having these conversations with people uh, let's say, outside the community who can shed some light of, of issues that we weren't thinking about in a certain way. So we appreciate you taking the time. Well,
2: it was uh, my pleasure to join you here. Um, I, I wish we'd been in some kind of skiff. Now I'm concerned someone who could be listening in <laughs> on us from outside. I, I, I kid. Uh, it's great to be uh, in the museum here uh, to meet you in person, um, and certainly um, I'm looking forward to the feedback from all your, uh, your listeners too. Thanks again. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.
0: Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network